3: He ko nae pūrangitene, na tereo irirangi o ao te No mai fa mai ki te ao tai whenua. Welcome to Country Life. I'm Sally Round.
4: Great to have your company. I'm Duncan Smith. Today, we visit a small farm near Renwick, where free-range heritage pigs wallow happily in mud to keep cool.
3: We'll have a roundup of news from the rural sector, and later, I'll take you to a small town with a long heritage of tossing the caber, pipe bands, and Highland dancing. But first,
4: Cosmo Kentish Barnes is with trucking contractor Gareth Parks at his base in Linkwater. Gareth has been carting livestock for a number of years, but more recently his truck and trailer unit has become a common sight on the Marlborough Sounds, as it's barged to and from farms. He's taken to the sea because stock trucks are still unable to get to properties in the outer sounds via the access road. Kinapuru Road was badly damaged during flooding in July 2021 and August 2022, and major repair works are ongoing.
5: The first month or so, when everyone didn't know how it was all going to work and what we were doing, we got on the barge at Havelock truck and trailer and and, um, got out to one of the bays, and it's called Fish Bay. Uh, we we have built a, a big ramp out there now f- for all tides for us. But the first couple of trips, yeah, I had a, a farmer's tractors come down to make sure I could get up the beach. And um, it was a little bay where, yeah, they used to back in and launch their own boats and whatnot. How many stock can that truck and trailer carry? Yeah, anywhere t- between 680 and 720 fat lambs. So it's a big, big unit. A big unit. Yeah, yeah and then around the 46 to 50 head of cattle. Yes. Two decks, yeah. I did 62 trips the first 12 months, and it was just over 70 trips last 12 months. And I do still go in the night before, and yeah, I lose a whole day gathering stuff up. I've got farms I can unload at and store with water and food, and, and then I reload them all on the next morning, and the barge comes back and picks us up. Who has the barge big enough? To get a truck onto? Yeah, Johnson's and Havelock are uh, the main lot in there. Yeah. So you coordinate with them? Yeah, and um, all the farmers. and We try and take all the al- lambs to Alliance Nelson if we can, the shortest distance, but yeah, the cattle have got to go to either Levin or Picuri. Per- 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 so,
6: What's the hardest property to get to with a barge and a truck and trailer? <laughs> um... Yeah,
5: our famous Miletus out at Waitui. Um, the easiest trip for the truck is up to Fish Bay, and that's two to two and a half hours from Havelock. And then to get to Miletus from from when I get on the road, it's a good hour and a half. And I generally do a tyre or two getting out there on the hard rock, and the roads are all right, but it, it needs a lot of work of metal. And yeah, down into the switchbacks, down into Waitui. And so it's and it's quite a mission. Very mission. And then a lot of the time for maletas especially and a couple of different farms in the sounds, but if the weather's not right or we get the rainy day, we've got to leave the trailer at the top of the hill and then we'll ferry them back to the trailer and that's mm. normally an hour each drive without loading time and unloading. So when
6: you've um, filled your truck and trailer up with sheep or or cattle... Do you normally have to back it onto the barge?
5: Yeah, we're very careful um, backing onto on a barge a lot of the time, and I'm doing it in the dark as well, and the skippers and I have got a really good relationship, we know exactly what each other's are doing, and yeah, it's definitely not for the faint-hearted, but I've got a lot of pride and pleased to be down there really. I, I do enjoy all the farmers, and I've been around them for a long time, so yeah, I've sort of put it upon myself to try and help the best I can and, and I'd enjoy it and they uh, they appreciate it as well and it's sort of a good community spirit. Mm. For the first, I don't know, I can't remember three, maybe four months, the mailman and I was probably the only outsiders getting into the outer sands. Um, there were boat access for other people that had to go in but for any joe blogs, some farmers you yeah, hadn't seen anyone else ex- except for the mailman and me. So,
6: gosh, And of course
5: this barge and trucking service must be a big additional cost for farmers. Oh yeah, There's, some's been done everywhere. I haven't seen them lately, but yeah, four to five times more than what it used to. Um, and the farmers have been told the, the road will be ready for truck and trailer by the end of the summer, but no one knows which summer, so yeah.
6: When's the next trip out to one of these isolated farms in the sands?
5: Yeah, we did a trip out last Tuesday, and um, yeah, our next one's this Wednesday. We'll be out for a load of deer Wednesday morning, stags to go to the works. Linkwater-based livestock transporter
4: Gareth Parks. And on the Country Life webpage there are photos and a link to a great video of Gareth heading out on a barge with his truck to pick up sheep and cattle from farms in the Marlborough Sounds.
3: And now it's time for a roundup of the week's rural news and let's head to Ototahi Christchurch and have a chat to RNZ rural reporter Sally Murphy. Now Sally, you have some news about the kiwi fruit crop in Tairafiti. It's not looking at all good a year after Cyclone Gabrielle. What's happened?
7: Well, vines which looked healthy in early summer are either completely collapsing, leaves are going yellow, or the fruit is going soft on the vines. The region carries about 10% of the country's crop from 50 orchards, and it's the third tough season in a row for these growers. We had a chat to one orchard owner there, Tim Titchens. He says nearly half of growers have been affected to some extent. The worst have lost everything, and others are removing fruit in the hope they'll have at least something to harvest next month.
5: Yeah, we were looking to carry around 15,000 trays and, um, well, 20% of my orchard needs to be replanted, and another 40% is sort of down to, I don't know, six or 7,000 trays that I'm just trying to nurse through. Right up until Christmas, you know, people were asking me how it was looking and how things were going, and I was cautiously optimistic and, and saying, no, things are looking really good, good numbers, plants are looking healthy, but... Yeah, I actually came back from my quick summer break and was shocked at what I saw in my orchard, how how quickly things had um, gone south. There's lots of people who are just saying how they're hating going out into the orchard at the moment. You know, it's just a bit depressing going and looking at a whole lot of sick plants and small fruit that's not going to get harvested and a bit of concern around mental health and that sort
7: of thing for growers at the moment.
3: Yeah, pretty tough, isn't it? Just staying with growing conditions, Sally,
7: it's getting tender dry in North Canterbury. Yes, it is, and that was amplified on Monday with a large scrub fire in Waikari. North Canterbury farm consultant Jeff Dunham says he can't recall a summer with so many sporadic outbreaks of significant rural fires. He says farms in the region look brown and dry, but they haven't gone grey yet, and there's more long grass compared to some summers ready fuel for a spark. And we're hearing it's a similar story in other regions too. Yes, it's getting pretty dry in Upper, Southland and Blenheim, where they're actually bringing forward a sale next week so farmers can offload stock earlier. Now let's look at some financial results. Pamu's profits are down. They are. This is the state-owned farming company, also known as Landcorp, which has 110 farms around the country. It's reported a half-year net operating profit of $3 million, well down on the $15 million made at the same time last year. Chief Executive Mark Leslie says there are a few reasons behind the drop.
8: We had a slow start in many parts of the country from a productivity perspective, but... We've also seen the benefit of that now with, with the grass that's been pushed through into the summer, so we'll catch up some of that. But equally, like all farmers have faced across New Zealand, we've seen the downward pressure on land prices, um, milk milk prices considerably back from their, their peaks of $9 plus. So, yeah, a combination of livestock, combination of prices, and we're still seeing the high pressure from costs and the locks of um, interest rates in that that we all face have still not come back. So a combination of, of drivers'
3: And interesting to hear Pamu's
7: got rid of all its quad bikes on farm. They have. Mark Leslie says due to the number of quad bike related deaths on farms generally, Palmu made the call to remove 440 quad bikes off its farms.
8: It was predominantly driven by the class of land that we farm on and um, all the work that we had done, we couldn't see how people could, I suppose, fail safely on a, on a quad bike. So we had looked at alternatives for our dairy units. A lot of that is um, two-wheel bikes and the small sort of Jimmy Jiminy utes. Um, and then on, on our sort of Mill Hill Country land, the side by side. So that was a, an active decision we made to, to making sure we could keep our, our people safe.
3: Now some news about honey this week. Plans are afoot to
7: revive the ailing industry. Well, in recent years, some bulk export prices have dropped 40% due to the pandemic and an oversupply of honey. This week, Apiculture New Zealand launched a strategy which aims to double exports to a billion dollars by 2030. The plan includes creating a new industry body, growing global market share and doing a better job of telling New Zealand's honey story. Apiculture New Zealand Chair Nathan Guy says the industry needs a stronger collective voice and a reinvestment model because at the moment the group is voluntary.
5: Well we realised that we had a failed attempt on a levy some years ago and now's not the time to really promote that. But if we're going to get serious in what we do well and that's producing honey and taking it to the world we need to have quality standards and the MPI has done some good work on that and we probably need to reach out and do some more. We realise that uh, biosecurity is fundamental so we'd like to see a varroa over time come into a pest management plan because if we can't perform well because of biosecurity threats and incursions that's going to ultimately mean that we can't hit our export double target.
7: So what do beekeepers think of the plan? Well, New Zealand beekeeping has given it a short shrift. They represent small to medium-sized beekeepers. Its president, Jane Lorimer, says there was little consultation with the industry on the plan.
9: It's not fit for the paper that's actually written on. It uh, could impact the beekeepers of New Zealand very severely to the point where it could put um, beekeepers out of business.
7: Ms Lorimer says the strategy has no costings, no clear priorities, timelines or ideas on a funding model. She says adding a levy for a Varroa Pest Management Plan doesn't make sense, as it's already widespread and basically in every hive.
9: They're also suggesting a, a single body in that for the industry, which we would have a membership fee. So at the moment all our industry bodies are voluntary, so that would turn to one, one industry body that we had to belong to. So those fees, and they're also talking about a decarbonisation um, sort of strategy as well, uh, those fees there would basically mean there'd be five different levies or membership fees in that for for beekeepers.
3: And just to finish, Sally, researchers are trying
7: to get to the bottom of lameness in stags. They are, and this is because at the end of last year, Deer Industry New Zealand held a couple of meetings with farmers where a number of them reported severe lameness in adult stags. Deer Industry Research Manager Eamil Murphy says there were a range of symptoms, including swollen and deformed feet and overgrown toes. He says there are a few common causes to lameness, but these cases were different. So they've teamed up with Massey University and VetLife Scientific to get a better understanding of the issue.
5: It's work we're doing in two stages. We completed just after Christmas a a phone survey with a large number of of their farmers just to pick up whether they've had increased lameness in the stags or whether they've seen difference in the lameness that that they had. And from there, we're doing about 100 on-farm interviews with farms, looking more in depth at the animals' uh, conditions on the farms, risk factors that might influence why they get lame.
7: Emil Murphy says they're hoping to have the research results done by the middle of the year. It'll be interesting to see what uh, what the causes
3: were. Thanks very much, Sally.
10: This is Country Life on RNZ National 101FM. Staying at the top of the South
4: Island, we're heading to Longacre Farm, where Cosmo's out and about with free-range pig farmers Rick Martin and Neron Illingworth.
0: We're up the Onhamalutu Valley in Marlborough, Currently we're out in the um, pig paddocks and around us is our little farm and it's a lovely day.
6: It is, it's quite hot and dry.
0: It is very dry.
6: And on the hills there's forest all around you?
0: Yes, we are a a small narrow valley um, and we are surrounded by forest trees and we do look up to the Richmond Ranges which is a pleasant outlook.
6: It's a very peaceful valley.
0: It is, it is, but it does have its moments. But it's, as you said, it's our little slice of paradise. (laughs) (laughs) And we enjoy it when we can.
6: Yes, yes. How long have you been here?
0: Well, we're never very good with dates, but I think it's around 12 years. We brought the land, took us probably another three or four to move a house onto it. So um, we just evolved from there.
6: And Rick, before you came here, you owned a hotel. Yeah, the
11: Junction Hotel in Spring Creek. Yep. We had it for about six years, the hotel and restaurant. But we owned the land here while we still had the hotel. And yep. your folks ran the hotel before you? Yes, they had it for about 16 years before I took over,
6: so it's been in the family for a wee while. So, how did you transition from running a hotel
11: to uh, farming pigs? Well, we both come from a farming background. When I left school originally, I went dairy farming for a few years, and then Neran's parents had a farm up the top of the Waihopai Valley, so we both did have a farming background. It's
0: insane farming, it was always sheep or cattle and just one or two pigs, not 30 to 60 pigs, which brought its own challenges, a lot of learning curves.
11: So yeah, we've been selling our pork at the farmer's market for about the last seven years. And how are things going? Good, yeah, we've got a good steady regular market for the pork. We could scale up and sell more if we wanted to, but we're just at a comfortable level doing what we're doing.
6: Excellent, well let's go and have a closer look at these pigs, which are
11: all heritage breeds. Yep, we only have heritage breeds. We don't uh, have any of the land race or the large whites. Just because they're outside in the weather and the sun and that, and they they can get sunburned and that sort of thing. Uh, These guys are a little bit more hardy. Now the piglets are coming up to us.
0: Yes, they are.
6: are Are you looking for a treat? Quite tame, aren't they?
1: Yes.:
0: Well, these are the ones that we had to take off the mum, first-time mum, and she wasn't coping, so we ended up with all of them to hand raise.
6: Mm. And you take them into the house.
0: Yes, well there is a firebox that they are allowed to sleep in for the first couple of nights till we get going and then we have other areas with heat lamps and it's funny, they, you know, the TV's going or the dogs bark and they sleep through it after the first couple of nights I mean, they just love being warm and fed and even if there's only one that needs to come off we'll take two because they're so social mm. so they sort of um, look after each other
11: Yeah, so they're duroc saddleback crosses, but they're thrown to the duroc side, those ones. We've separated the boys and the girls. We tend to do that just when we wean them. So when we fatten them, it's a lot less trouble with them. How many pigs have you got here on the farm? Well, we we run six breeding sows, and then we've got a duroc boar. And then it's just whatever offspring we have. So, you know, it just depends. But we can't. Yeah, we, as Niren said, we can get up to about sixty. Mm. Um, we have been bigger than that, but since COVID, we've sort of dropped the numbers back a bit. So um, it's
6: a lot of maths to feed. <laughs> it is. I guess Niren feeding them must take a bit of time.
0: Yeah, it, it's every morning and every night. You carry the buckets. It's it's physical, it can be smelly, but you've got to keep perhaps agile and fit. So. In summer it's pleasant, just in winter it's a bit of a challenge, but it's a commitment, to say the least.
6: Do you give them names? No. No. You try not to?
11: (laughs) (laughs) We name the sows, but we don't name any of the wieners. (laughs) They're not going to last long enough. So how long will they stay here? Uh, Depends on how fast they grow, but between six and eight months till we take them to the abattoirs.
6: And feed-wise, you've got quite a sustainable system going, haven't you? Yeah,
11: well, we're sort of the ultimate recycling, really. So we collect the spent barley from DNA Brewing, and then we also get the whey from Cranky Goat Cheese, and we get the vegetable scraps from a couple of the greengrocers in town, and we also get bread. So... Yeah, it's all recycled. One of them has just decided to lie down in the mud, of course. Mm. Yeah, it's pretty important in this yeah. hot weather just to have good wallow holes so they can cool down. Mm.
6: Now, I've just noticed a sow lying down in the shadows.
0: Yes, it's Clara.
6: She's got some teeny-weeny little piglets around her.
0: They are about two weeks old. She's eats Plenty, so she just wants to lie around and feed the piglets. Yes. But if you touch the piglet, she would not be quiet or calm.
6: Now I'm just climbing over the electric fence. <laughs> oh, these piglets are a lot bigger, aren't they? Oh, I am standing in the way. Hello. Yummy, yummy, yummy. That does actually look quite good one of them's got quite large round black
0: yes, spots he has. on him. He's a very good looking pig that one and he's rather cute when he was smaller but now they're big and um, grown out nicely so they will be going to Harris Meats within the next few weeks. Yes. Um, when they're in the paddock they don't look that big but once they are uh, on the hook they are a lot bigger.
6: Now I'm gonna get my microphones in between them here to see if I can get some some good sounds. No, you can keep going, it's okay. I just want, want to get a sound of you punching away. Well you don't seem to mind, do you?
11: They are big, I mean how
6: heavy would one of these pigs weigh?
11: Uh, when, they, when they come back from Harris's, they will probably be about 80, 85 kilos. So, yep, they'll go down on a Tuesday, get killed that day, and then they'll come back to us in a refrigerated truck the next day. How do they get down there? Uh, we take them. We've got a custom trailer that oh, we take them down. So take, you them, take down. them all the way down Yeah, there? just so it's less stressful for them. You know, like we train them to go on the trailer so they're comfortable in the trailer. And just take them down there and drop them off. And they more or less go straight in, so they're not waiting around. So and then they're back. They're back here. the next day. The next day. Yep. Yep. Ready ready to be butchered. And you do that yourself? Yep, we do that on the farm. We've got our own uh, commercial kitchen and butchery set up. Yep. Vacuum pack all the meat, and then, yeah, we'll sell it at the farmer's market. So... We also cook some of the meat and sell it in a bun, and that sort of thing. So we do bacon buddies and we also do a porchetta, which is an Italian style slow roasted pork with garlic, rosemary, and thyme in it. Oh,
6: I so bet that's, that's popular.
12: The, that's it's, a 3
0: a.m. start to get that roast on. Yeah,
11: it's a little bit of work, but we've got a lot of people who come to the market just to buy it every week. You know, we've got some people who have been coming for years every week and they'll come and buy a porketta roll because they just love it and can't blame them because it's nice. So, yeah, it's a big day, but it's good. It's good fun.
6: What are the most challenging parts of farming heritage pigs on a small scale?
0: Making them do what you want to do is very challenging with the pigs. So um, you have to have the set up right. For years, they were always getting out. You'd see them heading down the road into town, over at the neighbours so it was set up isn't it Rick, it's really important
11: uh, you know they're pretty hard animals to control, if they don't want to do something they will not do it, hence the term pig headed, yeah that's That's exactly right yep so so yeah getting your fencing right and your systems right to to managing the animals is is pretty important Mm. and Pigs are really intelligent too, aren't they? They are intelligent. Yep, yep. They're pretty clever, all right. They, you, you can teach them to do a lot of things. Yeah. yeah our original sow that we had, she would sit for us. Like we could say "sit," and she would sit, come. You know, she was like a dog, basically. But yeah. we don't have time to train them like that. But can you pick up on their emotions? Niren can better than I can. Yeah. What yeah, do
6: but, you What
0: do you sense? Well, you can always tell if someone's uh, Perhaps being bullied or unwell, if, if they've maybe eaten something that's not right. And I oh know it sounds funny, but it's just the way they hold their ears, um, some days you can go definitely go out straight up. And, Oops,
6: I'm being sorry, I'm being licked from behind Yeah.
0: <laughs> if they're stressed, I mean, you just don't want to put too much stress on them, they don't cope with it particularly well. So you just really try and cover all those bases. So there's no-one no likes stress in their lives, so if you can try and make it stress-free for them, it's, it's a better, better way to farm them.
6: Now, Rick, we are heading over the road because you've got some land on the hill here, and this is where your boar lives.
11: Yeah, the boar and the sows. So so generally what we do is we keep, we keep the sows and the boar, up here in the bush and then we'll just bring them across to the home paddock when they're due to farrow so we can keep a close eye on them yep, sure and enough. then once I've farrowed and we wean them they'll come back up here again
6: so they've got lots of shade
11: and up the valley here there are some derelict gold mines yeah they, they have used to gold mine up here I don't think they ever made a fortune out of it but yeah, there's, just up this gully here, there's a, an underground gold mine, which I believe they developed during the Depression. I've been inside it and had a little bit of a wander around. I bet it's nice and cool in there. Nice, yeah. <laughs>
6: <laughs> Hello, now we've come to your says, yep. and you are very muddy, aren't you?
11: Yeah, these ones are Berkshire Duroc Cross, so sheep. She's the one that just had that litter across there, which we had to hand raise. She, she wouldn't raise them for mm. some reason. And that's actually her mother, this one here Betty and Morag. And they've got their own paddock and their own little house. Yep, and they've got fence is going. And they've got a little wallow hole over there. Yep. And then this is Griffin, the boar. We call him Griffin because of his ginger nuts. Gosh, Griffin's testicles are humongous (laughs) yep he's a big boy is that is that normal I don't think he's abnormal
6: and a sow called Jules is in with
11: Griffin and they seem to be getting along quite well together don't they they do get on He, he is a gentleman you know he doesn't rough them up at all he's probably one of the best boars I've had for temperament so he's just he's just service Jules
6: does the mating process go on for long periods of time?
11: Uh, it just depends, but normally a, a day or two. Yeah. But he's a big boy. How heavy would he be? I would have thought he'd be three hundred and fifty kilos, something it's like quite that. Long. It's probably what? From nose
6: to tail, he's probably two meters long. Mm. And they're a good meat. Yeah.
11: Producing they, uh, animal. Yeah. yeah, I tend to find that the cross between the saddleback and the Dorset. Is a really good mix. How would you describe
6: the taste of the meat? Uh, like, what makes it different to other pork?
11: I don't know. It, it's probably a subtle sort of a taste. It's not, you, you know, sometimes you can get pork and it's really porky. Mm. It's not porky, it's almost creamy, I guess you'd say. Mm. You know, it's quite subtle. Yeah. And I think the breed and also what we feed them makes a difference, you know, because they're basically just vegetarian diet, you know, there's, there's, they're not eating any meat or any meat scraps or anything like that. Mm. So, you know, with the whey, lots of whey and the vegetables and the barley.
6: What about this stress-free environment? Does that have an impact on the texture or taste of of the pork,
11: do you think? I, I think it does if they're relaxed, you know, and they're not tense and, and wound up. I think it does make a difference to the, maybe not to the Taste but to the texture of the meat, anyway. Yep.
6: So you take them down to the abattoir yourself? Yeah, I do. Yep. Do you get a bit emotional
11: when you drop them off? Uh, Yes, I do actually. Yeah, I do find it quite difficult. That part of it, it's it's the worst part of the whole process. But that's what has to be done. Um, But when they come back and you know they're hanging in the chiller you know, you can see the benefit of all that hard work.
4: Rick Martin there with some of his pigs. Cosmo was also talking with Niren Illingworth at their long-acre farm in the Onomalutu Valley near Blenheim. They're at the Marlborough Farmers Market with their free-range pork products every Sunday morning.
13: Hi, it's Jess here from Dreamview Creamery. We sell milk in reusable glass bottles. You're listening to Country Life... RNZ
3: National We're off to the township of Turekina now in the Rangitikei district of the North Island On a cool and windy day at the height of summer the tartan, bagpipes, sheafs and cabers were out in force at what's billed as New Zealand's longest continuously running Highland Games They've been going for 159 years The first person I bumped into was Dari Benton Darry, what's your connection here?
11: Um, well, we
6: live about 300 metres away, and it was either join it or move house. So, um, And I'm the, um, they call it the chief of the Turquina Caledonian Society.
3: It's just warming up here, isn't it? We yeah. have pipers getting their pipes out of the boot, and everybody's uh, got their kilts on.
14: Yeah. Going to yeah. be a great day? It's
6: going to be a good day, regardless. Um, the our, weather's not looking the too The weather hot. is not. Not
2: the best, but it'll be all right. We'll be good.
3: Now, tell me Uh, your
2: name. uh, Callum Khan. Originally from Masterton. I live in Wellington now. I'm a tradie. I build car interiors for a living. And, yeah, just here to enjoy the day, I suppose. You
3: are beautifully dressed.
2: (laughs) Describe what you're wearing. Uh, Well, the typical uh, six yards of Scottish tartan. To try and keep the wind away, uh, wool socks, wool jacket and waistcoat, long sleeve shirt, and a tie. So and your and, shoes? Yeah, and the brogues they as well. Yeah.
3: Explain the brogues. They they're not just any old uh, no, leather no, brogues.
2: No, traditional piping brogues. Um, cut with the decoration there. Originally they were cut so that when you were walking along, the would let the water in and out. So and the laces going the right lace is up going the ankle. And the laces going up the socks. Yeah, to hold it all together.
3: Tell me more about what you do in terms of the the piping
2: here playing solos today in the a grade and i also play with a band manuatu scottish of which uh, myself and four others lead the band in the, in the pipe corps we where uh, one of new zealand's premier grade one bands we're second at the nationals last year and then at last year we also went to the world pipe band championships and got ninth overall out of every band in the world so yeah we had a good run last year and we're hoping to hoping to do a wee bit better even this year with the national champs coming up and how did you get into it so i started well, I was quite young, probably 9 or 10, my grandfather played and uh, I kind of had no real choice in the matter. He just uh, took me along, this was actually my first Highland Games I played at back in 2008 when I was quite young um, Yeah, and I just followed him around and ever since then I've been uh, yeah been coming back. I haven't missed a year yet.
3: Do you have a Scottish heritage yourself? Yes,
2: both sides, both sides, mother and father. So. And
3: how does the Turukina one rate in terms of... It's
2: actually pretty accurate to what a Scottish Highland Games is like. I, uh, I did a wee bit of travelling around with my partner Kate this year in, in Scotland and did a few Highland Games, St Andrews, uh, Dornock and a couple of others at Boyne and this is very typical of a Scottish Highland Games. Uh, you've got your big strongman events and then you've got your solo piping, solo drumming, the dancing, bands in the afternoon, stalls, lots of people, lots of displays here, yeah, it's great.
15: Hello.
3: Hello. I'm Sally from Radio New Zealand Country Life. Nice to meet you.
15: Yeah, Bruce Kaywood. And this is really home for me. I'm a descendant of one of the old pioneer families that settled in the Rangitiki, what is Martin now. And so I've been coming to these games since 1955. Are you a piper yourself? I was, yeah. What's your role now? I've been running the Peabot ward over there.
3: Tell us about that. That's a special competition, isn't it? Is it is indeed,
15: and uh, Peebrook is, is very ancient music. It's uh, some 300 years old, and it's very, very difficult to learn and play. And uh, But by having young people learning that, their fingering gets so much better, and, and it just improves their whole piping, including the light music which they play in the bands and on these other boards. So amazing, isn't it?
3: How important are these games to Turikina? And to this
15: area? Uh, well it's the oldest continuous highland gathering in New Zealand. It's not the first one that started, but it's always gone on uh, forever, and uh, in the war years they had it in March. And this is a Scottish settlement, of course. All of the families here bought their land sight unseen while they were still in Scotland and then sailed out, and I've lost the name of the ship they came on. Uh, there were many families here still have, uh, on the original farms. Uh, The grants at Tullock Gorham and the uh, Glasgow's down there at, at their farm just down the road. They're still on the original farms that they settled, you know, 150, 160 years ago. Amazing, isn't it? Hello.
9: Hello.
3: I can't help but uh, stop while I'm walking past because you are amazingly dressed. <laughs> yes, I am. Thank you. Tell me about what you're wearing.
12: Um, I think actually I'll need Ian to. I'm...
10: So she's dressed as a warrior princess. Yeah. Like Merida from the movie Brave. What she's carrying is a Celtic sword with a brass handle. She has, if you spin around, Miranda, a wolf's tail. <laughs> and a pouch, and on the far side she has an archer's axe. She has her quiver of arrows.
3: But I'm proudly also wearing my own McLaughlin sash, so it's a bit special. And what are you representing?
10: We, we do the cultural end of Scottish um, Highland Games, so the clan tents all along here represent the ancient clans of Scotland, and people come, uh, they have displays of their tartan, their genealogy, their history, and they tell stories, some of which may be true.
3: <laughs> are there many members of this clan here no, in No, we're very now? rare,
10: very rare. So we say, yeah, first on the field, last to leave, which is why we are so few, a keith.
3: And how did you become so interested
10: in, in the clan history? Three of my grandparents keiths, um, so I was kind of born into it. Um, and my mother did a lot of genealogy, um, much of which was wrong, so predating the the DNA era, Um, and I inherited all this when she died in 2005. I kind of got curious about, grasping for the Y chromosome, where have I come from, Um, and took on this role as the convener for the clan in 2012.
3: It's incredible, isn't it, that there are still so many of these games happening here in New Zealand.
10: Yes, there used to be a lot more, so back in the day there used to be an event like this on every Provincial Anniversary and they were huge and they had all sorts of things like bicycle races and walker races and a lot of drinking, (laughs) a lot of storytelling, (laughs) a lot of lies told. (laughs) It's part of our heritage. Um, But it's kind of cool, you get to meet a lot of people, Uh, we've made a lot of good friends um people come up and they say i want to understand more about my heritage um, and we have we have books of scottish names and stuff like that so we can help people who who aren't necessarily connected to us
3: i spotted a member of the McPhee clan standing in the middle of the field wearing the McPhee tartan tell me what else you're wearing
14: what else i'm wearing nothing under the kilt Is it Hose, um, polo shirt with McPhee logo, uh, dressed up for the McPhees and to be identified as a McPhee for passerby. We, we got a wee island off the west coast of Scotland called colonsay and that's where our last chief was. Unfortunately, he was murdered in 1623 by a McDonald. Clan
3: relationships, it, how are they today with the McDonalds?
14: Oh, we never eat a McDonald. Um, Yeah, it's just um, a long-term thing, we don't eat McDonald's and um, we were actually a broken clan for many, many years and then we were uh, reformed as a clan and we've had um, three commanders. Our last one just resigned a couple of months ago and now we're going through the process with the Lord Lyon of Scotland to identify a new commander and then they'll look for a a new chief. The idea is to try and find a a chiefly line from the guy that was murdered 400 years ago, which is almost impossible. It's not going to happen.
3: Why do you think Scottish heritage is so strong, you know, having these events like this uh, on the
14: other side of the world? It's just that strong connection back Back home, you know, just to be back home, and we call it home. It's not a home, but it's just a general feel. And when you go over there, you feel it feels like home. But it's widespread since the clearances. They took with them their culture and their pipes, and and that that, that culture, and it's still there.
3: Tell me about your son and
9: his journey into bagpiping. Ah, uh, right. When we came uh, 15 years ago, we're originally from Malaysia, both of us from Malaysia, and he was born here. Yeah. His dad joined the Wellington, uh, Wellington Pipe Band. We thought that because the dad is playing drum, we thought that he will go to the drum. And finally he said, no, 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 I'm, I'm looking for the bagpipe. I said, oh, OK, something new for us, for the whole family actually <laughs> so since then yes, he joined the, uh, I think he started to join when he was 6 years old Yeah. How old is he now? Uh, he's 9
3: Tell me about what you're going to play I'm
12: going to play Duncan McKenna's 2 for March and I'm really looking forward to the comment he, uh, the judge g- gives me
3: Is it and, hard to play the bagpipes?
12: <laughs> um, if you um, learn yeah, it's not that hard
3: what was the easiest thing for you
12: the easiest thing for me I think it was the goose when I was seven I think
3: what's the goose
12: Uh, it's like a basic version of the bagpipes with no drones and the chanter is a, a little bit more slow
3: well good luck today
12: thank you Been a kilt maker since 2018 when I first started training. It's an ongoing process. How do you train as a kilt maker? Uh, go over to Scotland and find a kilt maker to teach you. Are there many of them? They have been getting a lot less, but um, they've been doing a campaign over there to get young ones to start training as kilt makers.
3: What does it take to make a kilt? How intricate is it? Because you've got all those pleats, haven't you? I can show you. Um, I've got one here which I'm in the middle of making.
12: This is a um, Maxwell tartan. It is beautiful. There's eight yards in this. The back of it's all pleated and it's all mathematically put together so that you get the right size. I generally just mark them out then I pin them and stitch them, they're all hand stitched. How long does it take you to make and, and how many pleats are there? Each one's individual depending on the size of the tartan. This one's got I think it's 29 pleats on it but they can go anything up to about 40 or from from 20 up to 40. Tell us a little bit about the, the construction and, and what it means. Basically when you're walking although it's all attached at the moment you
3: actually see the um, different parts of the tartan. So the point of the pleats is really just to show off the beauty of of the fabric? Yeah Yeah. and also to give you room to move. (laughs) They can be a bit of a liability in a high wind though.
12: Uh, They're quite heavy. This one's a 16 ounce which I recommend for the winds in this country (laughs) Um, and you also have a kilt pin on the front uh, like I have.
9: got here today? Oh we have a selection of um, homemade genuine baking from the Women's Institute and jams and preserves from uh, our own gardens. All baked by local women? Yes. Local women and, and men? Do you have any men do some baking? No. Men seem to have an aversion to the Women's Institute for some reason, but they would be very welcome to come. (laughs) And you ladies, have you um, been doing this for a while? Um, This is my first
0: year at it because um, I haven't been at Turakina very long, although I'm now the president. (laughs) Um, So yes, I'm trying to do my part. And, um, yeah, I've been during the day, really enjoying it. Is the Women's Institute in good health? It's declining because the younger people, um, you know, they've got other things in their life. And those that have retired are probably looking after their grandchildren or, or even their great-grandchildren. Um, and it has, it's come down a lot from what it used to be, but we're still happy. We're still getting a new member occasionally.
9: Events like this must be important for your profile. Oh, definitely, definitely. Let them know, because already this
0: morning we've got one lady's come along and interested in joining. So, you know,
3: that's why we need to come out and promote ourselves. uh, Yeah. Good on
7: you.
9: And are you from the local area?
3: The yeah, yeah, um,
9: yes, yes, I come from Martin, and but we're a blend now. But my mother joined the Turakina Women's Institute in 1955, so when I was quite young. <laughs> yes. And do you always turn out for the Turakina Highland Games? Absolutely, yes, How I used to come with my mother. Or did you? When I was a child, yeah. And what was it like in those days? Oh, pretty much the same, I think. Yes, yes. I think the interest seems to have grown, though. Um, there seems to be a lot more interest now in people's heritage, you know. I think it's it's a wonderful thing, and um, it's a cultural thing for the Scottish people, Celtic. Yeah. It's a good turnout thing. today. Yes. yes. Just a shame the weather is not, you know, because they've taken the dancing away, and um, so the dancing... Adds a lot to it, but unfortunately they've gone to Martin, and um, because of the weather, yeah. But we'll still see some of the uh, field events later in the day. Oh, here, yes, yes, we're looking forward to that. Yes, you can't beat strong men in skirts. <laughs> <laughs>
15: Uh, chaff. How heavy is it? Uh, I don't know, it's got to be 10 kgs. Yeah. What's the technique? Uh, a lot of them, they... Well, when you watch these guys, some of them, like the... the Scotsman guy over there, they all have different techniques. Some like to hold the the pitchfork at the front and throw it and...
3: I What's just, your uh, technique?
15: Biff it over there, flip <laughs> it over the pole. <laughs> Well and truly. <laughs> what's, your, what's your record? Whoops, there goes um, another one. Oh, we got about three quarters of the up the pole, but one year there there was one guy. He nearly got to the. He uh, nearly went, went off the top of the wood into the ring. Yeah. Wow,
3: that's uh, yeah,
15: yeah, nine was, ten meters high. Yeah, but it's it's it was like an ideal condition. There was no winds and stuff like that. The wind know. does affect it, does yeah, it? Yeah. <laughs>
1: Uh, My name is Ben Caldwell, I'm a communications coordinator with Nangitakee District Council.
3: And you're competing here today as
1: well. Yes I am, yep, it's about our fifth time visiting uh, Turukina for the Highland Games. And um, yeah, I've had mixed success over the years but I thought I'd jump in again today. You've
3: just been tossing the sheath.
1: Yes, not very successfully. (laughs) I'm out at my customary third round so yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit disappointed but it's not really my event. Uh, Shot put and cabre are more my, uh, more my specialities.
3: Tell us a bit about the history of the, the sheath and the cabre events.
1: From what I understand is um, back in the, the, the old days back in Scotland um, you had a sheath of wool uh, or a bag of wool and it was basically um, you had to get the fork uh, into it and flick it up as high as you can caber, I'm not entirely sure of, but all I know is how to compete. Um, so basically the aim of the caber is not to throw it very far, but it's to land it at 12 o'clock. And yeah.
3: how heavy is that caber? And what um, is a caber?
1: Uh, it's a long pole um, made of wood. Uh, don't know the weight of it. M- old term, it was like 12 stone, but these are uh, a little bit smaller for us because we're not professionals. <laughs>
3: You've moved to the region from? Ayrshire,
13: Scotland, uh, west coast of Scotland. Why? Why did you come? Um, Well, my sister is here. She's been here for seven years. She lives up in Tauranga. So we um, visited about five years ago and just totally fell in love with the place. Geographically, it's a lot like Scotland, but the weather's better. Um, and uh, sports opportunities for the kids, um, both kids are pretty sporty and, um, and they're loving it so far. Um, not just football on offer. There's rugby, there's hockey, there's cricket, there's swimming. So, yep, they're enjoying it. <laughs> yeah, the wind's come today, so I think we're channeling a little bit of Scottish weather. Um, but, yeah, no, good. It's um, I love seeing different faces, different
3: accents. It's not all just Scotland. It's people that's got a bit of a connection to Scotland. That's what we like to hear. And is it... I mean, it is amazing. You're on the other side of the world and you've got this totally scottish flavor here yeah absolutely it's incredible how you can come
13: fly take what four planes we took to get here Um, and now we've come to a place where everyone has a connection there's stories about scotland there's masses and masses of um, bagpipes so yeah thoroughly enjoy it
3: Kaylee Johnson at the Turukina Highland Games. You also heard from Durrie Benton, Callum Khan, Bruce Kaywood, Ian Dixon, Glenn McPhee, Gillian Futcher, Haymsey and Ben Caldwell, among others. There's a video of the day and heaps of photos, including some of the Highland dancing, on our web page. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks for joining us. Ka kite